house. No, the right house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Heck. I'm from Canada Water. Your parents signed you up for a program to fix you, but Jared, you are a perfectly normal, very healthy teenage boy. They're gonna do things for you. Your revelation. You want to say goodbye? Welcome to the refuge program. You cannot be born a homosexual. This is a lie. It's a choice. Go. Fake it till you make it. Become the man you are not. Save yourself. Jared, God will not love you the way that you are. Is this what you want? Who's going to strike this demon down? Hit it! Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that forgot to mention the garbage plate moment in The Place Beyond the Pines, and I can't tell you how sad I am that I forgot to do that. Um, Western did New York represents. Did you forget to do that? Why did I feel like we talked about the garbage plate? Because we talked about it after we stopped recording. <laughs> right, <laughs> I made right. you listen to me go on for like seven minutes about what a garbage plate is after we stopped recording. Because Before I you finish the copy, you have ten seconds to say your garbage plate thoughts. Oh, um... It sounds disgusting, but it's like every diner in Western New York has some version of a garbage plate. In Rochester, it's slightly different. It's just like, whatever, it's just like a hamburger and a hot dog and Texas Red Hot Gravy and macaroni salad. And it sounds disgusting, and I probably would never order it, but also like local pride. And they mentioned it for like half a second in The Place Beyond the Pines, and it literally was just like, ooh, garbage plate. In Western New York, it's more of like an eggs and breakfast meat with Red hot gravy on top of it, which I also don't like because I'm a baby about hot sauce. Anyway, anyway. Oh my god, this sounds like poutine from hell. Keep kind going. of, yes. It is kind of like poutine from hell. But also, like, every corner of this country has its delicacies, and that is ours. Anyway. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my favorite revelation, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Um, uh, not like Troy Sivan, uh, breathily moaning, you're a revelation, but I want it to be like Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, <laughs> muttering, annihilation. You're a revelation. <laughs> The thing about Troy Sivan is, like, fairly or unfairly now, everything that he says, I assume, is a metaphor for anal sex. For his butthole. So, like, mm-hmm. Right. So, like, I imagine that when he says you're a revelation, it means, like, to my butthole. Like, that's sort of, like, the unspoken, like, postscript to every line that Aren't he there says. literal lyrics about God in that song? Yeah, but what it's also like... What are you doing like, to this boy's nice song? He's welcoming God into his butthole. What? We can't welcome God into our butthole. You welcome him everywhere Grow else. up, Chris. Grow up. That's all I gotta say. Anyway, to that. that song's about his butthole. Um, <laughs> I, um, I'm grateful that he's in this movie, if only because, like, he's listen, so I, will, I will keep stoking the fires of this age war that seems to be happening on uh, Twitter between gay people again, because it's summer. Gay people have to fight about things. <laughs> um, I'm grateful that Troy Sivan's in this movie so that I can tell him apart from any of the other twink singers like the Charlie Puths, the Shawn Mendeses. Oh, you Don't... have face blindness for all those boys. Face I can blindness, tell them apart. ear blindness, can't tell them apart. 
I the Troy Sivan, I can put a face ended. to a movie. The thing about the Troy Sivan character, and he like gets maybe like you know two scenes where he actually really gets to say anything, and he's not bad in them. I think he's actually pretty good. The thing that was like this this um, conversion camp is so strict about like not standing with your hands on your hips the wrong way or like you know whatever masculine posture or everything, and they let this boy sit there with bleached blonde hair and visible roots. I'm it like, was driving me crazy this time. I was like, they would not have let him do that. They would have they shaved would have his head buzzed, Exactly. They would have buzzed his hair. Like, And I wonder if that was one of those things where his management was just like, you are not shaving our client's head. Like, He has money to make as a butthole singing like pop star. So I was also maybe there for two days. Well, right. That's and also that's what I mean. It's just like so we're not going to do for like two days of filming. We're not going to you know put this kid back eight months in terms of like where his hair's at to be a pop star. Like that's not going to happen. And like I get it, but also it would have been funny to see them like try and CGI like hair color onto him or something, right? Just like mix it up, do something. Would have been funny if somebody reviewed this performance and called his performance a revelation. (laughs) Yes, it would have been. Um, Chris, we are. Somehow, already at the end of our Focus Features miniseries. How did we get here? What happened? It happened so quickly. Um, How did we get here? How the hell Pan left close Oh my god, shut the fuck up! (laughs) Sharon Stone um, as a muse. Um, Sharon Stone mused this entire miniseries into existence, and now um, Boy Erased is going to make us um, fight to to uh, I don't know retain our identity as focus features uh, adherence fans I don't know that was sweaty we're ending on a movie that proved my point that you were like no when has that ever happened in some earlier episode that the most homophobic thing in a focus that can happen in a focus features movie is to not have the intro audio and the focus features logo because Boy Erased has some guitar yes. music yes yeah not that fair. was a shame. That was a bummer. I wanted it. I need it. I need it to wash over me, as we have talked about before. And I had a vivid experience of sitting next to you when we watched this movie and being pissed (laughs) about that. About that moment. (laughs) Yeah. We're yeah, we saw this in about, Toronto. So we should get together. into the focus features. We we should talk about uh, when we first saw this movie too. Wait, how many other this had Oscar Buzz movies have we uh, covered that we saw together? It's only been like one or two other times, right? Widows. Um, Widows, right. That might have been the first, actually. We haven't had a whole lot of like opportunities. Too. Yeah. Um, we definitely saw this together. This was um, mere moments before I rolled my ankle walking down the steps at the uh, Scotiabank One in uh, uh, movie in so blah, it made you sprain your ankle. I, okay, I'm going to end up probably defending this movie more. And part of the reason, I think, while I sprained my ankle was not only because we were trying to, like, leave the theater early in the pitch dark um, to catch uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me across town, but we were leaving sort of, like, as the Troy Sivan song is playing and as sort of Lucas Hedges is, like, swaying his hand in the breeze or whatever. And I was, I will say... Not even to my embarrassment. I won't even be fully embarrassed by this. I was choked up by this moment. And I was sort of like, by the end of this movie, I was sort of like, I, you know, it took my brain down some some thought pathways. And I was a little, and also, 2018 was a 
don't know. I was, was I was going through some stuff. It was a time. Um, it was an experience. It, it was an experience. And so all of that, plus the fact that like the lights had not come up, and also the stairs at the Scotiabank Theater are treacherous because some steps are short and some steps are long, and you can't always tell by the footlights. And so, yes, I like just fully missed a step and tumbled forward down like three steps and rolled the fuck out of my ankle. And then you like helped throw my ass into the back of a cab. And because the whole time I'm like, let's go back to the Airbnb. And you're like, no, we're getting in the cab. It's Melissa McCarthy in a dramedy. I got to see it. I was like, are you sure? And you're like, yes. And I'm like, whatever, hobbling my like quickly swelling ankle up the steps at a, the Winter Garden. <laughs> yeah, up in the, like, stratosphere of yeah. the Winter Garden Theater. You know what, though? Worth it. That movie was worth it. Can you ever forgive me? It was so good. I was so glad I saw it. Um, But then I was basically limping through the rest of that tiff. Like, it was... um. It was unfun. And also, Again, that okay. was when I was sleeping on the most uncomfortable non-bed that I've ever had to, like, deal with at TIFF ever. Where it was this, like, fold-down couch with the, like, just a full-on, like, wood bar down the middle of where you were supposed to sleep. And it was just a nightmare. Just an absolute nightmare. I think nightmare. we can all blame this on Troy Sivan. Uh, yeah, sure. Song. It's all his fault. It is. Um... And we can blame it on Focus Features for not including the very calming, soothing right. intro music Right, to I would have been a lot more uh, calm as I was exiting that theater. So yeah, 2018, Boy Erased. This is how we're closing out our Focus Features miniseries. The last film we did was 2013's The Place Beyond the Pines. So like last we left our beloved um, uh, quasi-indie dependent um, they just gotten a Best Picture nomination for Dallas Buyers Club in 2013. And this next stretch of years is like, it is deceptively sort of failure heavy, or at least like, there's a lot of like, uh, this had Oscar buzz type movies in this next stretch of years between 2013 and 2018. And yet the thing was, Focus managed to like pull out at least one like Oscar reliable movie per year where Mm -hmm. like 2014, it's not really much of anything, even like hopefuls wise, but they got an animated feature nomination for the box trolls. This was sort of where they're like a movie, right? So their, their relationship with like us sort of really, you know, bears fruit in this stretch of years. I loved the box trolls. I thought it was so like, best like a movie. Love it. I really, yeah, I would say that. Um, and then also that same year, The Theory of Everything uh, gets five Oscar nominations, including a Best Picture nomination, and wins Best Actor for Eddie Redmayne. So, like, that was a movie that was sort of, like, lukewarmly received, I would say, by critics. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's terrible. I don't think it's all that good. I think Redmayne gives an impressive performance, and I think I'm a little bit maybe on the outs critically with people who think that but um i wouldn't have voted for him for the oscar but i'm not actually among those five maybe i would have who was the 2014 best actor no michael keaton man oh yeah michael keaton was so good in birdman you're right you're right anyway um theory of everything does i think better than probably as good as it as they could have hoped for right Uh, yeah 
Yeah. So good for them. 2015, we've talked about Suffragette on this podcast before. Um, comes to nothing. But the Danish girl, much as we can talk about its, you know, Yeesh. shortcomings and, and the bad things about it, which are many, gets four nominations and it wins Best Supporting Actress for Alicia Vikander. So again, success. Like much as me may not want it to be, uh, that's a success. 2016, a lot of misses. Like we're like February, there was uh, the Jesse Owens movie Race, which like never really caught any traction, and they released it in February. So really, right? Um, They have some big whiffs at the fall festivals that year. Where like Nocturnal Animals is awful, and I would say in many ways reprehensible, despite the fact that it involves a an A plus Laura Linney and giant pearls uh, performance and thirty seconds. Sure, but listen. A movie that awful, I'm going to take what I can get. And what I can get is Laura Linney and giant pearls. Like, it's, they're just, like, in, it's insane, that necklace. Amy um, Adams also makes the word junk into a, like, four-syllable word. <laughs> um, that was a movie, I think I've mentioned it before here, that I saw that movie back-to-back with Arrival, where... I can't remember which one I saw first. And I think it was that I saw Nocturnal Animals first and then Arrival second, which is good. Because if it was the other way around, I would have been in a terrible mood all day. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's an odd double feature of like one of my least favorite movies of that festival and my favorite movie of that festival. Um, also at that TIFF, A Monster Calls, which was the um, J.A. Bayona film mm-hmm. about the, the nice tree. Right? It was a nice tree. <laughs> He's such a nice tree. It was a very um, nice but tree. But yeah, it's a boy dealing with his uh, mother's death through like a fantasy world. Um, right. Who's the mom in that? Felicity Jones. It's Felicity Jones. Right. Okay. And 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 Sigourney Weaver was like the mean, maybe stepmother. British grandmother somehow. Something. Right. But like that was yeah. a movie that because it was in the Oscar season and it had a really great trailer. Yeah, had like it did. a buzz. second of buzz. Oh yeah. Because of that. And then people at the festival were like, eh. And then right. the release was kind of like, eh. Yeah. And then it looked for a while like Loving, which had um speaking of Joel Edgerton, um that Loving because Loving had premiered at Cannes, right, that year? Yes. And to like pretty decent buzz. And then it seemed like it had all petered out and it seemed like it was sort of a lost cause. And then right at the end there, uh, the, the Ruth Nega buzz rebounds and sort of boomerangs. Mm-hmm. And she gets a, I would say a surprise best actress nomination. I know it's she not had as been much of a surprise as you think, because if you look at that season, she actually did. She was a mainstay. She did very well the whole season. But I do feel like even with that, I feel I feel like that was like it was a lot of like sort of, you know, coming back from the dead a little bit. The like movie people... was so muted that I think it was more yeah. people thought that the movie was getting lost and yeah. nobody was. Yeah. So let me see. I'm going to pull up which precursor she wouldn't have gotten nominated for because I'm pretty sure she's she one was... of the few that shows up everywhere. I don't think she got a SAG nomination, but I'm willing to be proven wrong. I know she got a Golden Globe nomination because Meryl shouted her out in her uh, Cecil B. DeMille speech when she was talking about, you know, stars from all over the world, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. which was so nice. 
Um, but anyway, while you look that up, the other Oscar success for Focus in 2016 was another Leica movie, Kubo and the Two Strings, which I also really liked, even though there are some uh, casting issues in casting um, white voices to play in this very, very Asian tale. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a really good movie. It got two Oscar nominations, one for animated feature and one for visual effects, which is sort of rare for an animated movie to get a VFX nomination. So good for Kubo there. I think it's a really good movie. Looping back what it was for Ruth Nega, you are right. She was not SAG nominated, but she was also not BAFTA nominated. Mm, And I think the perception was, oh, well, she's a UK actress that they don't even vote for her. She's not going to get nominated. But it was also that the person who was nominated, they didn't nominate Uper either, but they nominated uh, (laughs) Emily Blunt for The Girl on the Train, which we've done an episode on. (laughs) Right. Um, So it's like, That late-breaking Girl on the Train buzz where everybody at the last second was like, oh, it's going to be Girl on the Train. And I think that was also a mistaken perception because, like, regardless of if she's not an American actress, that's an incredibly American movie. So yes. Yeah, it is. Um, Wherefore art thou? um, Wait, now I'm going to forget that director's name. Um, Jeff Nichols, Jeff Nichols. Where's Jeff Nichols? What happened to him? Okay. We've talked about this, I think, or I was talking about it with maybe another friend. Jeff Nichols is taking over. What franchise did I read? They were going to give him one of the sequels. I don't want to say it was a quiet place, but it was something yeah. like that. Let's see what's That's on his IMDb. Crazy. Hold on. I thought he might have been one of those directors that just like had jumped to television. But maybe not. Well, he's got some series on his IMDb called Hank the Cowdog, which it seems like it's an animated thing. Sure. Anyway, never heard of it. Um, I forget what that series is and that or what the IP is that he's basically taking over and that's going to drive me crazy. Interesting. Well, whatever it is, it's not on his IMDb yet, but uh I would like to I know Midnight Special was a disappointment to many including me, but I kind of um, like Midnight Special to be honest. What's that? I kind of like Midnight Special. I think my expectations were so high for it and it just uh it underwhelmed me, and I haven't really thought about it much, although I love the score to that movie. It's a really, really mm-hmm. good score. Anyway, um, so that was 2016. It is for... a quiet place. He's doing oh, really? He's... some type of uh, extended Offshoot? universe with a quiet place. Interesting. I don't know if that's the best uses of his talents, but okay. Um, 2017 as well. 2017, there must have been some kind of... Well, this is when Focus starts to make, like not entirely focusy kind of movies. They make like Atomic Blonde. Mm -hmm. In 2017, they distribute Atomic Blonde, which is just like, that doesn't exactly seem, uh, you know, in their wheelhouse, but whatever. Um, They have a lot of misses, obviously, this year. The Zookeeper's Wife is a a whiff. Um, The Beguiled, for as much sort of uh, attention as it got, that also played Cam, I'm pretty sure. It did. It won. I think Sofia Coppola got Best Director. That was also the year that Nicole Kidman had like four things at Cannes. Yeah. 
Yes. But they don't, I don't even think they sent screeners out for that movie. No, I think by the time award season, season came along, I think they had sort of given up the ghost on, on the campaign for that. Um, the Book of Henry is on is blood on <laughs> Focus's hands. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that did not go well. And then award season comes along. Judy Dench for Victoria and Abdul gets way closer to an Oscar nomination than I think any of us were comfortable with, even though we shouldn't have been so surprised because it's Judy Dench and Oscar voters love Judy or awards voters love Judy Dench. And it's mm-hmm. her, you know, revisiting the role that got her her first Oscar nomination with Queen Victoria. Um, not a very good movie, but she came quite close. I'm pretty sure she was Globe and SAG nominated. If that that. movie had had, like, any footprint on the season beyond that, like, if that movie had made any more money, it could have been a lot more likely. But, like, by the time nominations happened, that movie didn't exist. Yeah, agreed. But 2017 is the first year, the only year to date, that Focus got two Best Picture nominees. So they got uh, nominations for Darkest Hour and Phantom Thread. Both of them get six Oscar nominations apiece. Uh, Both of them are on the Best Picture lineup. Gary Oldman wins Best Actor for Darkest Hour for playing Winston Churchill. That movie also wins for Best Makeup. Phantom Thread wins for Best Costumes. So, like, a year that was shaping up to be disastrous for Focus ends up being one of their most, and in in one certain metric, their most successful Oscar year ever, which is wild to think about. Um, And yet it happened. And then that brings us to 2018. And again, they're doing a lot more, there's just a lot more movies in general. They mm-hmm. had uh, Thoroughbreds, which was a Sundance pickup, or were they already the distributor going into Sundance? It was one of those two. And Tully also was Sundance that year. So mm-hmm. um, they don't get the best documentary nomination for Won't You Be My Neighbor, the Fred Rogers documentary, um, even though a lot of people thought that they would. They um, made good money off of that movie for a documentary. Yes. Mary Queen of Scots gets a couple nominations and probably comes closer to getting a Margot Robbie supporting actress nomination than I would like to think. She but, was like, probably she, sixth place. She was probably, she probably a was. safe sixth place. Because she, she was SAG nominated and also BAFTA, maybe? Like, she was yes. another one where by the end, right before nominations, people were like, it's probably going to be Margot Robbie for Mary Queen of Scots. Margot um, Robbie has like a billion BAFTA nominations that we don't talk about because she was double nominated that year. She's nominated for this. Was she nominated for Wolf of Wall Street at BAFTA? Wouldn't be surprised. Hold on. Now I want to bring that up. because I don't think is... she got any nominations for Wolf of Wall Street, but I think she got loves Margot something. Robbie. Hold on. Bringing up Margot Robbie's IMDb right now. No, nothing major. MTV Movie and TV Award for break, Breakthrough Performance. So there was that. Um, so what are we looking at? BAFTA. She's been nominated for I, Tanya, Mary Queen of Scots, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a very deserved nomination, I will say. Um, and oh, she was nominated twice in supporting actress at BAFTA for Bombshell and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Just give her the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood nomination. That's the one she deserved. Like, yes, she's great in that. All right. Anyway, Mary Queen of Scots, though, kind of loom. Well, see, this was even though they have Black Klansman this year, hit movie. Yeah, that was as well with Oscar. Get Spike Lee his Oscar finally, even though it's yes. a screenplay nomination, a screenplay win, not a director win. Still counts. This is still kind of 
and I hate that we're kind of ending on this because we love focus features, but like this is actually kind of a failure Oscar year for them, especially if you don't look at how far they took Black Klansman, which was also a summer movie too, because like this didn't, this movie, Boy Erased, did not fare very well immediately in the festival season. Correct. Didn't really get uh, much of a reception at the box office whatsoever. And it also had Mary Queen of Scots and On the Basis of Sex kind of looming over the season. Like the type of movies that you very much expect to see at the fall festivals and they yeah. don't show up until AFI, which yes, those two movies, if they don't go to Toronto or like Telluride, you kind of know what that means. Well, I remember, so Mary Queen of Scots, when I eventually wound up seeing it, I was like, this is actually halfway interesting. I don't love it, but I don't hate it. There are some interesting things going on in this. But because of the fact that it got held for so long, I remember being like, this thing must be terrible because they're not putting it in any of the festivals. And you just get that assumption that because they're like, keeping it away Mm -hmm. from the festivals they're trying to like hide it somehow and for whatever reason that reputation stuck i don't know how good i don't know how well it would have fared if it had done the fall festival circuit but that was definitely the reputation that sort of had come around for insider circles by that point was Mm -hmm. the same for on the basis of sex and like i think both of those movies are fine yes. but like once they had finally gotten seen they already had this kind of tainted air about them because they were these big huge movies that like we expected to be awards players and yeah you know when the whisper campaigns start and when a movie doesn't go to a festival when it is reportedly ready to go to a festival yeah well it, and especially yeah. if you look at best actress that year i am incredibly happy that both melissa mccarthy and Yelitsa Aparicio were nominated for Best Actress that year for Can You Ever Forgive Me and Roma, respectively. Mm-hmm. But you can easily see a world where Felicity Jones snabs, nabs a, a second Oscar nomination for On the Basis of Sex if that movie is campaigned savvily and sort of and is put in front of voters in a certain way. Like you can like that's yeah. not out of the question, even with that movie being mediocre. It's not terrible, it's not great, but like that is the kind of performance you could easily have seen nominated. And so you're right. It's kind of... The same with Saoirse, too. For Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a very good point. That's a very good point. Again, happy that it shook out the way it did. One of the sort of bright spots of that 2018 Oscar year, which we'll get into probably a little bit later, was how Best Actress kind of shook out, both in the nominees and in who eventually won. Um, but... We'll get to that in a bit. So, yeah, so this is the end of our focus. I think after 2018, um, without sort of lingering on it too much, they got another Best Picture nomination this uh, this past year for Promising Young Woman. Does really, really well with that movie. And I know that, like, pandemic circumstances sort of, you know, brought the field back to a level where something like Promising Young Woman could do really well. But I think, like... By all metrics, Focus Features played that card very well, I would say. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that as far as the pandemic is concerned and awards campaigning is, you know, um, 
played out in the past year. I think probably nobody did a better job in terms of when they scheduled a movie um, and how they positioned themselves in the award season. I don't think anybody played the game better than Promising Young Woman did, ultimately. Yeah. Um, but I mean, obviously, Nomadland won, so it's not like, as far as a movie that didn't real that didn't like win best picture obviously sure um that movie was handled incredibly well as far a movie that like if covid hadn't happened and that movie had stuck to its release plan it probably wouldn't have landed a single nomination right i agree because it was an maybe carrie mulligan could have gotten like a surprise fifth nomination or like something that they really would have had to like like battle for but like yeah i agree yeah. I remember when that when those reviews came out of Sundance, I was like, I'm so excited to see that movie. But it never crossed my mind that it would be an Oscar contender because, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, it just felt like there was just so much ground for it to travel. And then, obviously, the whole landscape changed. Um, Promising Young Woman ends up being the 13th Best Picture nominee for Focus Features to date in the, what do we say, almost 19 years now? That mm-hmm. uh, that it's been existence, so that's you know, well, you know, almost it's not quite one a year, but it's you're averaging certainly you know two out of every three years or something like that. I can't do the math off the top of my head, but um, it's a good run. It's a good run for Focus, just to sort of run it down. Um, Thirteen Best Picture nominees of all of Focus: The Pianist, Lost in Translation, Brokeback Mountain, Atonement, Milk. A Serious Man, The Kids Are All Right, Dallas Buyers Club, Theory of Everything, Darkest Hour, Phantom Thread, Black Klansman, and Promising Young Woman. That's Those are like some really interesting titles. And Mm -hmm. again, have never won Best Picture. I don't know if I feel like they're knocking on the door. I don't really have that sense. But like, again, they did a really great job with a movie like Promising Young Woman. They could still, you know, lightning could strike for them. And I kind of hope it does, just because... I'm we love them. them. Yes. So anyway, that brings us 30 minutes into this recording to the <laughs> film in general. But I, like, you know, this is we want to we want to send focus out on a on a good note. All right. Listen, our focus episodes have been jam-packed episodes. Yeah. And we got you know, a lot to talk we, about. We hope you we hope you like that, dear listener. All right. So we're talking about Boy Erased. I want to let's jump into the plot of this movie and then we can uh and then we can talk about what we liked about it, what we maybe didn't like about it, how successful it is, and we'll go from there. So 2018's Boy Erased, it is directed by uh, actor-director Joel Edgerton, also written by Joel Edgerton, based on the memoir by, is it Gerard Conley? I think it's Gerard. All right. Um, Starring Lucas Hedges, Nicole Kidman, Russell Crowe, the iconic aussie duo best friends russell crowe a lot of australians in this movie yes joel etcherton also australian um uh also cherry jones troy savan xavier dolan joe alwyn flea of course from uh the red hot chili peppers this premiered at the telluride film festival on september 1st 2018 it opened very small on november 2nd 2018 never expanded beyond 670 something screens and made very little money uh chris before we get into all that though would you like to do a 60 second plot description why not it's what we do here let's do it all righty so chris 60 seconds to sum up the plot of Boy Erased starting now. 
Boy Erased centers around a young man named Jared who's played by Lucas Hedges. He comes from a very uh, conservative religious family. His father is a car owner, a car dealership owner, but he's also a pastor. His mom is very ingrained in the church as well. He ends up uh, coming out as gay and they put him into reparative therapy. Meanwhile, we learn more of his backstory while he's going through the reparative therapy um, with his family and such uh, through flashbacks and such. Turns out when he first went to college, the one uh, male friend that he makes um, ends up raping him in the night and this kind of fuels a lot of uh, what keeps Jared uh, quiet about his sexuality. Anyway, back at the uh, conversion camp, he is faced with um, a lot of mental manipulation and abuse such as is in uh, reparative therapy. Um, And uh, eventually he... uh, leaves uh, with the help of his mother and his mother accepts him, but his father, it's kind of like a, you know, a tense situation. That it is, and that is time. Very good. It's it kind of really hard situation. to get, like, into the detail of, like, plot in terms of what happens. It's a lot of observations, like Troy Savan telling him, you just have to play the role and get through it, and then figure it out once you're on the other side. It's Xavier Delon, who is on fucking one in this movie. Um, I, I think he does a good job in this movie, I will say. I think he thinks he's in another movie. That's very um, possible. Yeah. Not surprised that that's Xavier Delon that yeah. way. Um, it's a lot of bead jewelry um, encasing... Nicole Kidman's body. Yes. Um, So I feel like my feeling with this movie is I would have liked any element of it to have been more of the movie. And I think the movie kind of spreads itself mm -hmm. pretty thin among the stuff with his parents, the stuff at the conversion camp, the flashbacks. And I'm like, any one of those, if they had been the focus, I think it's probably a stronger movie. And I think it's not a good piece of adaptation, to be honest. I think that's probably true. And Have you read the? Did you read the memoir? No, I can't read, as we know. Um, <laughs> Famously, Joe can't read. I've read the memoir. It's incredibly internal. Um, it's kind of loose throughout time. I felt like at times it was hard to tell what that he was going through was before or after um, the conversion therapy. Oh, interesting. Um, because like there, it, it seems like there was actually a lot leading up and a lot of fallout afterwards. Um, yeah. What Joel Edgerton probably does get right about the adaptation is that the book is really about this family dealing with this situation, not the like kind of ins and outs of the like religious reparative therapy stuff that like feels like is looked at you know, salaciously in terms of like, we want all the details of how this person was abused, you know, um, in terms Except of Except I like, don't feel like it's them. delivered all that salaciously. That was one of the things I sort of liked about it was that it never felt like it was being ginned up for drama, even though I no, know. I don't, I don't mean that from the movie. I mean, when people, when like we discuss this oh, like, sure, sure, sure. as a sure. culture, as a society, it feels like, you know, people are, you know, uh, rubbernecking people uh, being abused. Right. Um, and, like, the majority of the book really felt like him dealing with his, you know, trauma from being sexually assaulted and yeah. the trauma of, like, go, you know, being uh, closeted and, you know, the dynamic that was broken with his family and trying to repair it so that they're a family that communicates together. Yeah. More so than 
you know, what probably sold the book. And I think Joel Edgerton is right in the tone of that, but like doesn't really get a rhythm, doesn't get a balance. This movie doesn't really feel like it has an arc to it. And like the best stuff of the movie is in the last like 15 minutes, right? Yes. The the confrontation with Russell Crowe. Sure, yes. Like the like kind of catharsis of him being able to leave the, um, you know, indoctrination. Here's where I sort of emerge as not the best person. Um, (laughs) It's what? It's a four year jump from him getting out of the therapy camp to when we flash forward and he's living in New York with a boyfriend and this sort of eclectic circle of friends and all the Brooklyn lager he can enjoy. And I literally, I remember at the time I did this too, but I did it again when I watched it this time. And I was just like, cause it's like four years later. And then like almost immediately he's like sidling up to his live-in boyfriend. And I was literally just like, fuck off. Like that, like, and again, whatever my inability to land a man is not this film's problem, but I was like, man, it is nice to be young and white and attractive in, uh, you know, a big city and you can, you know, uh, land a boyfriend that quickly. No. Um, I think you're right that it's, it builds to a strong end. with the stuff with his dad, especially. But I think because Russell Crowe is so absent from so much of the middle of the movie, it felt like I'm, like, catching up to, like, get back to where we're supposed to be sort of emotionally with this father-son story. I don't think we get any of their relationship beyond, like, the initial confrontation over, you know, what this Joe Alwyn character said about him uh basically blows the whistle on him preemptively um out of right his rapist is the one that outs him to his family which is right. horrible diabolical yeah um but i don't know i feel like again this is where i feel like if any one part of the movie had been more fleshed out i feel like if we had seen more of what's his relationship like with his dad with his mom with his community how does he feel about the church how does he feel about you know his sort of small Arkansas town and stuff like that. I think it's maybe more impactful by the time we get to the end of this movie. Well, I mean, a, I don't think it really builds to that scene. I think that like those scenes just kind of happen siloed on their own and they're effective on their own because I don't think the movie really is good at building to anything. I think like it's kept pretty low, but like, I don't know. I think there is, I think Russell Crowe's absence from the bulk of the movie actually kind of helps bolster what Jared is ultimately saying to him, or at least it it was to me. And I also just think that Russell Crowe is really good in those scenes. I think there's a certain restraint that he has that feels very honest, but also effective and satisfying on the terms the movie wants to have. Um, And, like, we can get into, like, who is this movie for? But in terms of what I think this movie's intentions are, I don't think that Russell Crowe is doing anything that betrays them. And I think... um... 
that. On the level of who is this movie for, though, I'm glad you sort of bring that up because that was a thing that I remember was very much a topic of conversation then. And I think it happens with any time we have a sort of queer-themed movie that has any kind of ambitions to be seen beyond the small sort of cadre of, you know, queer people who, uh, you know, will, will see it. You know what I mean? We will see it. Um, There's a question of, okay, are you pandering to straight people? Are you, are you sort of straining to make them understand your perspective or whatever? And I get that that is a frustration with a lot of movies. I didn't feel that frustration with Boy Erased. I remember thinking, especially at the time, I was like, if this is the if this is a movie, if this is a gay movie that is pitched to my parents instead of me, fine. If this is a movie that is pitched to the parents of queer kids, if it, you know, not to be like if it changes one person's mind, it's a success. But like, honestly, if this movie can appeal to and nobody saw it so whatever but if it can appeal to parents and and in any way just be like hey you know this is fucked up and don't eat like this is not a consideration this is inhumane don't treat your children this way a lot of people also still don't know about gay conversion therapy and what like type of abuse goes on right and not that this movie is like a you know goodwill ambassador from the united nations or anything Right, right, right but I do feel like if this is if this is the gay movie that's going to be pitched to my mom and dad and, you know, not my mom and dad, they don't, you know, they didn't send me anywhere and thank God for that. Um, but to someone's mom and dad, I'm fine right. with that. I'm cool with that. I, I like I agree. And like, I, I think that's fine. Like if that is like what a movie's intention would be. But like I kind of push back that that is the full intention of this movie. Like I do think that. It's less that the movie isn't meant for people who have maybe gone through conversion therapy or, you know, other queer people who feel passionately about it. It's that it's one of the movie's failures, that it doesn't get enough inside of Jared's head and Jared's yes. experience. I and like there, it's it's not easy material, too, because like I said, the memoir is incredibly internal um, and like. Lucas Hedges is doing all he can. I think it's a good performance, but like I do too. But I think narratively, you're right. directorially, it is a failure on this movie's part to not that he feels more like a cipher. I want to um, know him so much more. I want mm-hmm. I want so many more chances to let Lucas Hedges bring me into this character. Easily, the best scene in the movie is the flashback to um, the artist who he spends the night with. And it's so brief and it's so, but it's just like all the potential in the world is in that scene. And I feel like that's the scene where we have the best chance to see Jared sort of for who he is. And it's just so, it's so tantalizingly brief. And I, but like when those, when they start sort of just like having that conversation, I'm just like, I want to listen to this for like 25 whole minutes and we get Mm -hmm. it for about two. And it's it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how you felt about that scene, but I... I, um, I, I it's a lot less impactful to me, but, like, I can see what you're saying in terms of... It feels like it's the only time that... I mean, I, I think maybe it do, still doesn't get into his experience that much or, like, from his point of view, 
or illuminating it to us. It's just that he actually talks about it for that one scene because. Yeah. But that's what I mean. I feel like if we get more time with that, that's like, that's the Rosetta Stone. That's mm -hmm. the thing that sort of unlocks the movie if we could have unlocked it. The thing that maybe unlocks the movie is the scene that uh, leads into him, you know, fleeing and like getting his mother to come pick him up. Uh, First of all, any scene of mom, will you come pick me up is like uh, tragic. Um, But where they're trying to get Joel Edgerton's character is trying to get him to like say all the things that he hates about his father, the things that make him angry. And he's like, I'm not angry at my father. Um, And that, if I remember correctly, felt more uh, protracted and more like verbalized in the memoir. And it feels Mm -hmm. like it's a little too brief in this movie. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's just, there's just a lot that it feels like the movie is not, getting into a gear right like it's always stuck i hate to use a car listen the most homophobic thing that i will say on this episode is use a car metaphor when we're talking about a gay movie (laughs) um but it, it feels like it's constantly stuck in first and like i remember at this tiff we had heard through like the rumor mill of like this being one of the movies that was having a really hard time in the editing room. And I think mm. you can watch the the movie and see the signs of that where it's yes. like, yeah, the structure of it is, you know, it feels like very much someone trying to feel it out. And I don't think, I don't think it's very confidently directed. I don't think the assemblage kind of makes any, it makes narrative sense, I guess, but it doesn't make like trajectory sense. Like it just feels kind of meandering until the finale of the movie, which is like, I think probably the best scene, the final father son scene. Yeah. Um, And then you have Nicole Kidman doing the speech of a mother knows when something is wrong, which is like, if there's a scene in the movie that it feels like this movie is for the parents of gay children, it's that scene, Um, which I think she's fine. And I also appreciate that her performance feels like calculatedly understated in a way that feels better. Like if this was more like, Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe some people will disagree with me, but if it was more like rot and earnest it it would be too much and it would probably be worse but like and i feel that way about all of the the main performers i think i think kidman and hedges and crow all i think pretty uh intentionally don't deliver these big moments with a they're trying to avoid an after school special they're trying to avoid the like high melodrama of the like worst version you've seen of this movie and like i give their performances credit for that while saying i still don't think it's very well directed i also i hate to be because i think this is very reductive criticism when you bring something down to like an accent and i wish that and i know why they movies don't do this but i wish they had just been like realism be damned nicole kidman just talk how you talk because like i think (laughs) there are a few moments where i'm just like her trying to get to the accent of this arkansas woman is getting in the way of her playing the scene the way i know she can play that scene and i don't know there were just a couple moments where i'm just like pulled out of it when i don't want to be when she's like delivering delivering this 
really good performance or really good scene. And it's just like, oh no, right. You really had to like work to get that, you know, R or something like that. You know She's what I mean? a good actress who's giving a decent performance. That's probably still miscast. Like yeah. I want to see like Holly Hunter in this role, but know? I will say, was this the year? Was this the tiff of Kidman wigs? Was this the, it was the... also destroyer. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That wig is perfect for that character. That, that look is perfect for that character. And I think it communicates a lot about that woman. And I think all of that works and is, you know, good shorthand. And I'm just like bummed that the accent didn't, you know, go hand in hand with it. I'm a, I, it was less distracting to me. And maybe that's because like at this point, Nicole Kidman accents, I, I just, I'm along yeah. for the ride. Um, can I but, talk for a second about my favorite small performance, small character in this film? Yes. I think I wrote down in my notes, I'm like, can we just entrust all of our vulnerable teenagers to Dr. Cherry Jones? Because, like, honestly, that... 30 that, seconds of screen time and it's perfect. That kind of character who is just, like, an oasis of decency in a world of madness... I'm just like from the second she's just like, I believe in God, but I went to medical school too. And she's, you know, and talking about just like, I can, I can't say that your parents are wrong, but let's just imagine that they are or whatever. And it's just like, she's so, you know, she's so trying to save this kid and she knows that she can't beyond a certain point. And it's just, again, it's just radical decency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and Cherry Jones could not be better equipped to deliver that scene. I could have watched that scene 20 times. I think she's just like a warm blanket in that film. <laughs> right? I'm not wrong. The little bit of the actors that you get um, also at, oh, we should mention the organization's name so that you can uh, direct all of your. Um, oh, did they use them. the actual name? Uh, it has since changed its name. <laughs> oh, wow. Because also the character that everybody, everybody's character names are changed, including the protagonist in this movie. I assume it's probably for legal reasons. Um, yeah. Because the character that um, Joel Edgerton is also playing, I think he's terrible in this movie, by the way. Um He's the worst performance in the movie. Um, oh, that's interesting. The real life counterpart has since abandoned the organization and has um, married you a know, man. Yeah, married a man has, which uh, is like the least surprising reveal I've ever seen. Right, where it's just like I think the postscript really thinks it's like pulling the wool, pulling the blanket out from under you, right, and just sort of just like married to a man. I'm like, yeah. Like, yeah, and we don't want no to necessarily perpetuate the myth of all homophobes are gay, you know. No, but this organization had a whole damaging. thing of just like we are our our clients are also our instructors. Do you know what I mean? And it's just like mm-hmm. so like it's it's a it's this self-perpetuating cycle of um you know, you are you know, warping these these people at and at a certain point and then radicalizing them in your own you know, cult of, of whatever. And like, yeah, of course the guy who's running this thing is also a former, you know, reformed quote unquote, uh, homosexual. Yeah. Naturally. Yes. Um, 
all that to say, I was uh, I got far off track, but to say the like bit players that are also at Love in Action are all very good. There's this, um, there's the actress that plays the lesbian that's there that I don't even know if you ever see her speak, but like yeah, she exchanges so some meaningful glances with Jared that are like more subtextually going on in those moments than yes. uh, a lot is going on in this movie. Jessie um, La Tourette is that actress's name, mm-hmm. by the way. She's really, really fantastic. Yeah, and the guy um, who plays... I think his name is Cameron, the guy, the sort of big mm-hmm. the football player-looking guy. The worst that we see. Yeah, Britton Sear is that actor's name, and I think he does a very good job. That's He's the other thing good. is, like, I think maybe the best version of this movie is the one that spends more time with his family, but I also would have liked to have seen the version of this movie that really spends a lot more time with the characters in... Uh, I keep wanting to say it, New Directions in my uh, in, in my mind. It's love in action. Um <laughs> But right, they all have names like Not that, right? New Directions. New Directions, Promises Kept, you know, Pathway to Righteousness, all this stuff. I know no New homo. Directions is Glee, but, you know, whatever. Um, also, well, Flea you know, is you know like, what's true about Jesus' love. Uh, Jesus' what? love is no homo. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Um, also, credit to Flea for being so... Um, Terrible? Obviously terrifying. Just absolutely frightening as shit i feel okay but this is my problem with his performance and joel edgerton's performance is that it is so it's so clearly trying to avoid cartoon that it does the full 360 of like trying to be real and grounded that it just becomes a laughable cartoon again i don't know if i agree with that but but go on (laughs) i just eh. First of all, it's not going to be undistracting to cast Flea in this movie. See, I think that's good casting. I think as soon as I see Flea in that role, I'm just like, yeah, like he's like, he's, I know his whole deal. I know exactly what he's bringing to this performance. And I think it's good shorthand. Because he's like, he's the, you know, masculinity psycho, right? He's just like, he's this... Yeah, he's the he's the most overtly homophobic to Jared in the whole movie. Yeah. And I mean, it's like... like antagonizing him while he's trying to go to the bathroom, like... Right. Yeah, I don't know. I think he, I think he works well. I think Edgerton, I mean, I don't know if I get a whole lot out of Edgerton's performance. I think at worst, it's a little bit of a flat line, but... I don't think he strikes any discordant notes, or at least he didn't to me uh, in the two times that I watched this movie. He's not really an actor that I like. I think he's probably doing by a mile his best work he's ever done uh, for Barry Jenkins and the Underground Railroad. And even so, I'm not coming away from the Underground Railroad being like, that Joel Edgerton, man. Like, Yeah, I guess I've been on board with him from Animal Kingdom. I really liked him in uh, in that movie, and I feel like he's one of those sort of like a Jeremy Renner type, where everybody's like, "Why is a what's a Joel Edgerton?" And I'm just like, "Okay," (laughs) but I don't know. I think he's fine. I think he's good. Um, He was somebody coming into this movie. He had directed that movie, The Gift, with Jason Bateman and Rebecca Hall, which is like surprisingly like like 
unexpectedly dark. It like goes darker than I expected it to be. It's sort of this like thriller turned horror kind of a movie about a um sort of a an obsessed uh old friend done wrong kind of a thing. Jason Bateman had been the bully to this guy uh to this guy played by Edgerton who then starts terrorizing him and his family and I remember being that the reception of that movie was sort of a slow burn, but people I think ended up talking mm-hmm. about it a good bit. And cause it was like a, a very quiet summer release, like yeah. counter programming to like a kid's movie or something. So like people had yeah. to kind of discover the movie. Yeah, it's good. I think it's a good movie. And I feel like there was some, um, I mean, you talk just talking about the buzz for this movie, there was this like big bidding war between focus and Netflix. And this was like, the movie was basically packaged already where it was like Edgerton, Kidman, Crow, Hedges were all like ready to like make this movie. They had acquired the rights to the memoir and Netflix and Focus sort of fought it out to see who would get it. Focus wins. I feel like maybe that's the last time that will happen. If there's a bidding war between Netflix and anyone for Netflix to not win. This felt like the era of when there would be bidding wars for like projects like this. Mm-hmm. If it didn't go to Netflix, it was a filmmaker or, you know, a producing team that felt very strongly about the theatrical experience. Yeah. However, I mean, we've said all of this that we don't think that the movie is very good or it doesn't work at the very least. But like, I think even maybe the best version of this movie might have been better served by a Netflix where it's like, you know, there's cert- there's been certain things over the like past five years or so that it's like, you know, people may want to deal with the this subject matter and the privacy of their mm-hmm. own homes. Um, I can think of like um, HBO's The Tale when HBO picked that mm-hmm. up from Sundance, where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it might that might actually be a good home for this, where like people can. Uh, feel whatever they need to feel and process it however they need but god to. did that movie get buried on hbo too though it hbo didn't serve that movie ultimately mm-hmm. but like i i can see a version where this movie does that be- even if regardless if the movie is better or not that it gets better received on netflix i feel like though- also netflix just produces so much garbage that it's like well the bar is lower on netflix i think it's a lot to ask somebody to watch something like the tale at home to watch something that is being sold to you as intense and unsettling and disturbing and challenging but watch it with your phone like tantalizingly two feet from you at all times do you know what i mean see i think i I think it's more so that that, like if people are going to have uh, a, an experience, especially if it's like it draws on things that you maybe have experienced yourself, you may feel more comfortable and safer doing so at home than, you know, in public. Yeah, I mean, okay, I will grant you that. But I will also probably say that that's not the majority of your audience. Well, and... sure. And it may not, like, that may be more thought experiment than anything else. Yeah. I just feel like. <clears throat> Those kind of movies, I think, require the sense deprivation almost of a theater to, you know, get the most out of it. But Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Um, We should talk about Lucas Hedges, because going into this movie, 
He was it's all about baby Lukey. Well, I mean, I, we were all in a very sort of, and I think we still are. I don't think like the bloom is off the Lucas Hedges rose by this point, even. But like, um, Manchester by the Sea in 2016, he gets his first Oscar nomination. He's incredibly good in that film. Um, not everybody um, knew who he was before that film, even though uh, if you watched The Slap, you would have known <laughs> that Lucas Hedges was one to watch. Um, and then 2017, he's in Lady Bird. Obviously, other people got the lion's share of the attention from Lady Bird, and rightly so. But there's not a single actor in Lady Bird that doesn't steal a scene. Even Catherine Newton steals yep. a scene in Lady Bird. Yep, yep. That's exactly that's exactly right. Um, he's truly wonderful in that movie. Um, he's also in Three Billboards uh, Outside Epping, Missouri that year. Um, so, like, he was on a real hot streak coming into Boy Erased, and I think. Not, uh, you know, I I don't think it would have it was uh, unreasonable if you would have thought, okay, this is going to be a big breakthrough. He gets a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor, and also sort of swirling around this, and I don't want to linger on it too much, but like there was this kind of thought, expectation, rumor mill, whatever that the publicity tour for Boy Erased was going to include some kind of coming out narrative mm-hmm. for him. And ultimately he d- has this interview for Vulture uh, with uh, Kyle Buchanan and talks about his sexuality somewhat, I don't even want to say elliptically. It's not like he's being, uh, he's not uh, avoiding things or whatever, but he talks about how he was, you know, sort of emotionally attracted to his male friends growing up. And it's, it all feels very sort of a soft sort of bisexual, pansexual, you know, queer acknowledgement without, without being any kind of like, Oh, a reticence to put a label on it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Which is, you know, not unusual for people in his generation. Also, I will say. Mm -hmm. So like, I, Part of me feels like this is the flavor of, you know, coming out we're going to get from a lot of, you know, celebrities of that generation and younger. But I think not to be overly crass about it, there was an expectation that just like, oh, if Lucas Hedges is going to be in Boy Erased and the narrative becomes him coming out amid the the release of this movie that it would be a story that it would be a narrative that it would be i think we talk about oscar narratives a lot obviously on here and that would be a hook that one you know that a studio could campaign on and again it sounds crass because it is crass but well, and not to be crass myself but i honestly don't i think that probably would have not been as well received as people thought because like when you're talking about a story of gay conversion therapy and if it was if he used his own coming out as a tool right coming it would have from seemed self-serving a very privileged existence you know with you know right son of a filmmaker all that it, yeah. it would i don't think people would have gone for that either yeah but either way i support his uh unwillingness to uh put some type of label on it who fucking gives a shit <laughs> like I mean, I Personally, give a shit. I'm I don't gonna, give a shit. I do. I give it. I give it. I 
I'm happy to have anybody who wants to come out come out. I think it's ultimately well, a net yes, good. Well, yes, of course. Absolutely. I think it's a but net also, good for the world, the more people who come out. But I also think it's a net good for the world to for people who maybe feel like they can't put, you know, it in a tidy box. To totally. Say, Absolutely. I can't put this in a tidy box. Yes. Right. Exactly. Label yourself or don't label yourself however you want to. My my only thing is I whatever. Like I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but I don't <laughs> want it to be that not la- let that to label yourself becomes gauche. Do you know what I mean? Like if you want to like right. plant your flag Plant your flag. I don't feel like I don't want people to feel like that's not cool. Like you know what I mean. That like, and the, we don't want to pretend. The that, chill like, thing maybe... is to be like labels don't matter, and it's not like you know, it's it's sort of shunned or frowned upon to actually like plant a flag. Plant well, a flag and I would also want. add that like we shouldn't be so gauche to say that like there wouldn't be career ramifications for him to plant a flag anywhere. Like you know, sure, um, because that still does exist. Um, but it's one of those things where I feel like if, you know, a point of critical mass, you know, can be reached where ultimately and things are getting, you know, better and you see more and more people getting cast regardless of, you know what I mean? Like I've seen Matt Bomer cast as many, you know, as many heterosexuals as as gay characters and stuff like that. But, you know, whatever. It, you're right to say that there's there definitely still is you know, career considerations or whatever. And I just want mm-hmm. Lucas Hedges to be happy. This is all. <laughs> I just want him to be happy. Well, and uh, this might not have been the uh, fall to have at least made uh, this, uh, some of the uh, his fans happy because it was kind of this fall of disappointing releases for Lucas Hedges because it's this, Ben is back, and mid-90s, which... Oh boy! Still haven't seen it. Still haven't seen mid nineties. Probably never will. You should enjoy your life never seeing mid nineties. Where it's like it, it's kind of and it's like you kind of have to throw beautiful boy in this because it became this like joke, like the joke of those movies all blurring together. Even though they, Boy Erased and Ben is back, or um, uh. Beautiful Boy and Ben is Back are the two that have similar themes, right? You know, a, a yes. son with addiction, a yes. parent uh, helping them get through it, right? Yeah. But, like, it became... People said more about those movies blurring together than they did about the movies themselves. Yes, I will say, with the exception of the fact that I have enjoyed... Uh, I have There are not too many memes that I've enjoyed as much as I've enjoyed the Ben is Back meme. I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's been very malleable to my my uh, purposes on uh, on Twitter. I'll just say you have a lot of fucking audacity taking that much enjoyment out of it since Ben is back is the movie that ended our friendship officially. Listen, I I, I no regrets. I have no regrets. If I want okay. to point out that when Ben shows up and Ben is back, that that is Ben. I feel like it is well within my rights to point that out. <laughs> it is a Material never fact. Never been so close to hitting someone. It is a material life. fact. It was Ben. It was Ben. All right. Do you do you see the look on my face when you said that to me? Do you see that? Does it haunt your dreams? I wasn't looking at your face. I was dropping a bomb and then going back to paying attention to the film in front of me. It's not a bad movie. No, I actually I liked Ben is back, and I think Julia Roberts is quite good in it. She's very good in that movie. 
Um, uh, okay. Um, we talked a little bit about Kidman. Not my favorite performance of hers, obviously. I could see where the buzz was coming from. She did get a Critics' Choice nomination for this film, mm-hmm. which is fun and interesting because it means the Critics' Choice at some point thought that uh, that Kidman was going to get an Oscar nomination, which is funny. It is, <laughs> it is during her sort of supportive mom run, because it's two years after Lion, where she gets nominated for playing a supportive mom. Um, a, a performance I think that she's good in probably wouldn't have made my top five on any kind of a list, but like, I can't begrudge no. that nomination. She's good. I was happy. It will always be a again. weird Nicole Kidman nomination because it's not like the type of performance she usually does. Yeah. And I guess probably it shouldn't be weird because that's probably precisely why she was nominated. Yeah. Um, considering like things like birth are the performances i think of when i think of nicole kidman or the paper boy which was the last thing that she had been buzzed for i totally Um, get why she was nominated for lion but not for paper boy like i get it i really do it makes sense i also think probably aside from the movie not really landing the thing that probably kept her from getting nomination is like destroyer that year and it's harder to get nominated for an either or type of thing when it's like you're probably running sixth or seventh yeah for either you know like they're competing they're both competing to be nominated in fifth place right i feel like there was a minute there where it felt like everybody was like oh yeah she's gonna get nominated for destroyer even if people don't like the movie she's gonna get nominated for destroyer and it went away it's just like did well not it last. probably went away because it was distributed by annapurna and they were yeah had their not problems. good at it when yeah. they were doing distribution yeah um the russell crow of it all is interesting because i feel like it took a long while for the sense of russell crow as being an oscar darling to kind of come back down to earth because he was nominated three years in a row in 99, 2000, 2001, because he won a best actor Oscar and because he almost won two in a row. Like he came very, very close to winning uh, for a beautiful mind as well. Um, And then it's been nothing since then. And I think sometimes, I think it took us a while to sort of realize that, that just like, they're not going for Russell Crowe anymore. Just like, Mm -hmm. it's just like not happening, whether it's American gangster or a body of lies or whatever, you know, Robin hood, you know what I mean? Any of these Mm -hmm. kind of things that might have in a different world been a possibility, like awards voters were not going for that. And so now I feel like, and even stuff like, like Les Mis where he's just bad and it's just like, oh, so bad. And so now I feel like we're at a time where the the Russell Crowe Oscar comeback nomination is going to happen at some point, whether it's within the next. For something like this, where it's supporting actor. Yes. Um, And he might win another one. I could see him winning another Oscar in his lifetime. Especially if it's something that's maybe a little atypical like this movie is. I still probably feel like he's, maybe he's not better than Lucas Hedges, but I think he's really good in this movie. Um, And the I mean, even if this movie had done better, supporting actor this year solidified really quickly um, where it's like maybe six or seven with like four of them absolutely kind of locked for a nomination. 
So this was that very, very strange year where, um, uh, wait, sorry. Oh no, I, this was not the, I got mixed up with Mahershala Ali uh, wins. This was not the year that Aaron Taylor Johnson won the Golden Globe. That was 2016. Um, yeah, Mahershala won the Globe and the Oscar for Green Book this year. Um, Chalamet for A Beautiful Boy was the one who was nominated for a Globe, but then didn't get the Oscar nomination. Uh, Sam Elliott somehow was not nominated for a Golden Globe, but did get the Oscar nomination. And thank God he's so good in A Star is Born. Um, yeah, you're right. I think Adam Driver sort of got like slotted in there and solidified really quickly. Richard E. Grant, thank God, was able to hang on. I was so worried that entire award season that he was going to get like surprisingly left off at the last minute. And thank goodness it didn't and happen. And the surprise person that got left off is Timothy Chalamet, which everybody treated like a shock. And I kind of expected to happen because I was like, Sam Elliott, Michael B. Jordan um, are right there. And nobody likes Beautiful Boy. And nobody's talking about it. Right. I just, yes. I just think Chalamet was one of those ones where like all the precursors were there. And so the, the, it would, it made sense that the year after this sort of breakthrough nomination for call me by your name, that they would sort of give him that, uh, Mm -hmm. that follow-up nomination Uh, in retrospect. Yes. Everything that uh, you're saying makes sense. I and think, also Sam Rockwell, unfortunately. And right also there. Sam Rockwell, unfortunately, for Vice, for like a scene and a half giving a halfway decent George W. Bush impersonation that nobody needed. Yeah. An, so S- it, an SNL cameo. And it was Rockwell who ultimately gets the, that's the, you know, good job for following up your Oscar nomination. That's the one mm-hmm. that I thought Chalamet was going to get. It ends up going to Sam Rockwell. Um, Michael B. Jordan in uh, Black Panther is interesting because that's one of those I kept waiting for it to materialize and it just never did. And I would love to know exactly how, like, how close he came because I'm wondering if maybe it was like not at all and this was just sort of all wishful thinking in our heads. I think the whole that whole campaign for that movie was centered around yeah. Best Picture and the Crafts, and they yes. never kind of put the gas on getting an acting nomination for right. it. Right. Which is too bad because he rules in that movie, and, uh, and so does Denai Guerrero. I was all and like, "So does Denai Guerrero." Nominate Denai Guerrero. I know. Do you remember? <laughs> this is so funny to think of when the Avengers Endgame poster came out, and she wasn't, she was not named in the uh, eight billion actors along the top of that mm-hmm. poster, and there was such an outcry over that that they ended up putting her in. That they ended up being like, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, we'll put her in. And I think we all sort of felt very, very satisfied that we had, you know, that direct action had worked and and whatever. We were all very good at uh, our rabble rousing that day. And then you watch Avengers Endgame and you're just like, oh, they just don't have her in this movie. Which, like, all of the outcry was because it made logical sense that she was going to be in this movie a lot. Because she was one of the, like, eight people who didn't get snapped all the smithereens, right? She was one of the few people who was still around. And I think the movie we were sort of making in our head, I certainly was, was just like, oh, yeah, like, Okoye is going to be one of the, like, main people who's going to, like, go on all the missions. And she should have been in the version of, of, you know, Endgame that I would have made. In the version that would have made for a better movie. I mean, and I liked Endgame quite a bit, but, uh, but yes. Oh boy. Um, and so I just thought that was so funny that we were so like hyped up on Tiger Rear that we were just like, put her on the poster. And then you saw the movie and just like, oh, I get why they didn't put her on the poster. Like, I, like, I understand. Um, 
but yeah. Um, anyway, she's wonderful uh, in that role. I love her. Um, anyway. Oh, all right. I want to talk about the song. Every time I talk about a song from like the 2000s that I'm like, I'm surprised that get a nominate that didn't get a nomination. And like you or maybe a guest or whatever will just be like, Joe, it wasn't a really good song. And then I'm like, yeah, but look what else got nominated. And it's always this like vicious circle. I don't circle think this even like, made the bake off if I'm remembering correctly. Which is wild because it was Golden Globe nominated. I mean, that's not so unusual. The Golden Globes have less right. than no correlation with the the uh, Oscar nominees for that category. This is also one of the years that the Golden Globes, every nominee is like a major like music star. It's obviously yeah. Gaga, obviously Kendrick Lamar, Dolly Parton for Dumplin, um, and Annie <laughs> Lennox. The surprise that Revelation wasn't nominated is Jonesy is also credited on it. Oh, that's interesting. Jonesy and Leland. Um, Because you look at the Oscar nominees that year. Shallow obviously wins. It was always going to win. I think the surprise of that, I still think A Star is Born could have easily pulled a second nomination if it had tried. And I kind of get why they didn't, because they were just like, we got to win this award and we cannot let the Sam Smith of 2018, you know, creep up on, you know, on Gaga again. And I get it, but I easily, easily something like always remember, uh, always remember us this way. Is it us or me? It's it's always remember us this way. Us. Yes. That's what I thought. Um, Something like that could have gotten a second. I'm the psycho that when that movie happened, I was like, that song is better than shallow. It's not, but it's great. You know what I mean? Like, Shallow's the, the... It's equally as great as Shallow. Shallow was a phenomenon. Like, we can't we can't deny... Shallow was a phenomenon before we heard the full track. Right. It's, that's why it's that good of a song. It's that... Is this going to be the episode where we devolve into talking about the Star is Born trailer? I mean, maybe. Have we never talked I about mean, it? I mean, maybe before? the finest trailer of our lifetime. Well, I just walked out of a movie yesterday where I saw the End of the Heights trailer again, and I was on the verge of tears behind my mask. Um, yeah. But anyway, shallow was number one with a bullet that year. All the stars from black Panther. Great nomination. Love it. I will allow when a cowboy trades his spurs for wings for the people who loved that movie. And for the people who loved that nomination, you can have, you can enjoy it. I'm happy for you. I will not begrudge it. Were I given I am, a Rumpelstiltskin wish to change that category, I'd keep it in there just for y'all. Good for you guys. Um, but <laughs> like, such a bitch. I'm what? I'm being very. You just generous. hate that movie. I don't like that movie. It's not a good movie. It's not a good movie. Um, disagree. I'll fight from RBG, my beloved Diane Warren. It's it's a no. It's a no from me. Um. And then, much as I will stand up for certain aspects of Mary Poppins Returns, mostly Meryl Streep, uh, as crazy Slavic... God, this is just the portion of the episode lady. where we're just fucking fighting. I'll fight! I'll fight! <laughs> but anyway, I can like I will fully, happily jettison uh, the place where lost things go, much as I love Mark Shaman. Um... Yeah, the art, the choice of Ansong is better than both of those things and should have been a nominee ahead of those. So I maybe at the time thought that the song was better, but like watching the movie this time I was like there's literally lyrics that are it's a rocky road. 
Oh, the lyrics are very, and they're very on the nose to like the scene as we're watching, when it plays during the, the, the heart of the movie, where like the, I it plays mean. during the scene with the, the artist Xavier, Xavier, uh, uh, maybe named after Xavier Dolan, who knows, um, where he like says something and then like Troy on the soundtrack sort of like echoes that same line. And I'm just like, oh no, don't do that. <laughs> um, but it also, I will say lyrically, Maybe not my jam. It is no thoughts, just vibes, and like I'm, I, I'm cool with that. I'm, I'm cool with that in this movie. My butthole's a revelation. Oh my god! <laughs> you know, justice for butthole songs. Troy, you are the bard of. Uh, of I'll buttholes. say another butthole song that should have been nominated that year. Why did you do that? Uh-huh, uh-huh, I knew you were also go there. written by Diane Warren. I know that we could have gotten. We could have, you know. Uh, more bang for our buck that way. We could have gotten two Stars Born nominees, two Diane, or uh, the right Diane Warren nominee, I should say. And uh, yeah, all our problems could have been solved. Uh, Where else do we want to go? We should also mention Nicole Kidman got an AARP Movies for Grown Up Award nomination. All right. I do not have these in front of me. You do. I'm not even going to quiz you on this. You would not be able to get them. No, just lay them on me. Um, Angela Bassett for Black Panther. Oh, love it. We love and support all accolades for Angela Bassett. Yeah. Um, Michelle Yeoh, Crazy Rich Asians. Love it. I love it. Should have been an Oscar had... nominee. Yep. Yep. Um, at least should have gotten way more closer than she did. Yes. Why didn't the fucking Globes nominate Michelle Yeoh? Like, she's famous. She's a fucking movie star. That's what all they care about or cared glo- about. No, the Golden Globes care Rest about famous American and British actors. They like, they really, the Golden Globes yeah, for we, all their other thought. problems. One of a, a big one of theirs is that they don't recognize, uh, uh, Asian actors at all. Right. Anyway. Um, Blythe Danner for what they had, which is actually a pretty nice movie. Still never saw it. Um, pretty sure it's just sitting there on Hulu still. Um, and then the winner, um, because we know that this is the only awards body that watched the screener of this movie, and good for them, and we support them for it. The winner is Judy Dench yep. for All Is True. All Is True, the most psychotic uh, movies for grown-ups <laughs> moment ever. Listen, you can rely on the AARP movies for grown-ups to stand All Is True. Yep, that's insane. What an insane lineup. Good for Nicole for showing up in there. Um, what else do I want to say? We mentioned the song. Do we want to just jump into... Uh, I wanted to close out our focus features. Wait, let me go through my uh, my little notes on the film, just in case we get anything before we get into our uh, focus features wrap-up. Oh, the very beginning, it was the credits, and one of the producers was Tony Lip. Not that Tony Lip, but I got very, very concerned for a second. Uh, this Tony Lip is spelled with two P's. Uh, so, uh, different guy, apparently. But I was very, very, uh, that everything truly was coming up Tony Lip in the year 2018. Um, Tony Lip, of course, famous pizza folder from, uh, Green Book. Um, the whole thing where he had to list the behavioral sins of his family and, uh, Kidman's character sort of latches on to the whole idea of like gang affiliations and whatnot. I thought it was very cute. I thought she did that uh, uh, very well. I thought that was a good moment for her. Oh, the 
I noticed this in the second time around. And I remember it from the first time. The absolute rage in me when the Joel Edgerton character is basically like, you should drop out of college because it's not teaching you like the right. godly things. Oh my God. I was just like, if the mission here that, is to get but, me to go like white hot rage against these people, <laughs> like that will do it. Okay. I have people who are close to me who have somewhat gone through, not to the extent that uh, the author of the memoir did, but like who started reparative therapy like sessions yeah. and quickly failed um those people are like that (laughs) those people will try to wedge in in any way to get you away from what they perceive to be gay you know yeah like oh yeah no i mean if it's something that is for your betterment like i'm sure i'm sure like it 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 did not ring false for me but it's just like oh my god it made me so like angry um and then also the bus stop moment is genuinely oh. hilarious and it's not supposed no, okay. to be but it's I'm like glad it's you very brought that funny. up it's it, very funny. it has no business being in the movie it's like he literally touches an ad for cologne and it's like it it it's just such an absolute misstep and like i can see how at the time like the gay people who were angry at this movie for like thinking it was for straight people i that's the scene where i'm like you maybe have a point because that has no business being in here and it really does feel like there were no gay people on set to say, maybe don't do this. It's not just that it's on the nose, though. It's that, like, he's, like, walking around sort of, like, sad and forlorn. And there's this bus stop ad of this, like, beautiful, sexy lady. And then, like, as he's walking past it, it changes from the lady to a boy. And this, like, gorgeous-looking, like, twink or whatever, like, beckoning him from the the sea foam or whatever. And it's just, like... And this, this transition of it is so funny. And the affect of it is so, like, you really, really do half expect the boy from the ad to start talking to him. <laughs> like, it's one of those things where it's just, like, you're, it's so cartoonish and it's so silly. And, yeah, yeah, not a not a well-reasoned uh, moment for that. It's It's really, and, like, even I remember, it's in the trailer, and when the trailer dropped, it already had people's, like, knives out for it because yeah. of that scene. And it's, like, people who are mad at that are not wrong. It's, it's, it's not just cringy, it's also just, like, a lot of cliche perceptions that are just, like, uh, okay. And I don't remember anything like that from the memoir, too, so it's, like, it's some type of invention here that, like, you would see an ad for abs and feel uh, pain by it, you know? I don't... I actually don't mind that part of it. I feel like there's lived experience within, like... I I recognize that. The idea of, like, looking... Opening up, like, a Rolling Stone and seeing an ad and just being like, oh, my God, like, my... You know, my emotions are, are ravaging me right now. But it's just, like... But the... Just, like, the transition to it and, like, the flipping of the ad from one to the other, it's just, like, the tone of it was so... Yeah. Quasi-comedic. It was... It yeah. was silly. Silly, I will say. Um, all right. To close out our Focus Features miniseries... Um, to say goodbye to the month of May with uh, with our third miniseries. I thought we should rank our top 10 focus features films of all time. We started, we actually didn't know our second film was the very first proper focus features movie. So we're going to leave aside October films and, and 
USA films and grammar scene. Movies that focus distributed outside of the United States. We're doing US distribution. Yeah, only US distribution, only. Um, so sorry, Lady Bird, even though you were distributed outside of the United States from Focus, you do not count. Um, yeah, so I will say, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, this was very difficult. I had a short list, and it was a pretty... Like, the bar for making the shortlist was high, and I had 17 movies. And I was like, how am mm-hmm. I going to cut anything from this list? Everything that I cut There's is There's some really good stuff love. that's not on my top 10. Um, I'll just go through, before we start ranking, I'll go through my runners-up, and then you can do the same. Um, my number 11, and, like, it was flip-flopped back and forth for a while. My number 11 is Pariah, and I really, really... Pains me to leave it off. Um, other runners-up... Our, our previously discussed Lust Caution, uh, Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice, uh, In Bruges, Door in the Floor, which we've also talked about on this podcast, and last week's entry, uh, Place Beyond the Pines. We're all cutting room casualties. Oh, and Anna Karenina also. Joe Wright's Anna Karenina. Spectacular. What were yours? Uh, uh, my five runners-up that I have, uh, I have Lost in Translation. Yes. For reasons I'll maybe get into. Um, Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, Gus Van Sant's Milk. Sure, yes. Todd Haynes' Dark Waters, a movie that I think, yeah. because of the context of that season, we were not prepared to really uh, deal with what that movie was doing. And I think they probably screwed that movie by rushing it out so quickly. Yeah. Um, and then Park Chan-wook's Thirst. That is a great First. movie. I've still never have you seen, seen that movie. I still have never seen that movie. I should. It fucking rules. Yeah. Won't spoil anything for you guys. That is a wild movie. Uh, go watch Thirst. Nice. All right. Um, why don't I go my list from 10 to 1, and then we can talk about it a bit, and then you can do yours. All right. Cool. My number 10 is uh, Kerry Fukunaga's Sin Nombre from, I want to say, 2009. Uh, I still have to catch up to. Oh, it's good. Um, breakthrough movie for Kerry Fukunaga. That was before True Detective, uh, before any of this sort of uh, crossover stuff. Um, really, really excellent movie. It takes place in Mexico. Uh, this sort of young guy trying to uh, deal with, you know, should he get initiated into a gang? Does he want to sort of stay away from this? And he ends up sort of traveling with uh, on the essentially I'm like at the top of a train uh, across Mexico. It's a really good movie. Uh, my number nine is far from heaven. Todd Haynes is far from heaven, a movie that I've been meaning to rewatch for a very, very long time. But I just remember from watching it back in 2002, it, you know, made a big impact on me. It's gorgeous. Julianne Moore is flawless. Number eight, lost in translation. Uh, well, I'll let you sort of talk about the, you know, your misgivings with it or whatever. And I think I know, know what you're going to talk about. It's less misgivings and it's more, uh, Sofia Coppola has a lot of focus features movies. Um, yes. And I, yeah. Trying to know, pit, to pare I down stuck my claims elsewhere, trying to pare down the Sofia Coppola movies and the Joe Wright movies, uh, was a challenge. I did end up with two of each for both, but, uh, that's, there that's is a filmmaker. I have two films for, but otherwise I was trying to spread the love. Yeah. That's smart. Uh, well, my number seven is Sofia Coppola somewhere. So I put the both of them uh, on this list. We've talked about somewhere on this podcast before. I do love it. Number six 
is Away We Go. I mention this movie a lot on this podcast. Uh, I know a lot of people don't love it, but I really do. I have like real true affection for it. It, uh, uh, it gets me. Number five is Joe Wright's Hannah, which is a movie that sort of gets lost in his filmography a little bit and lost in the Saoirse Ronan filmography a little bit. But it is rad. It is super fun and rad and people should watch it. Uh, what is my number four? Atonement, the other Joe Wright movie on my list. Um, Atonement sort of got tarred with the Oscar bait brush that year, and I think it's much better than it gets credit for. Uh, It's awesome, and also James McAvoy is at his all-time hottest, and that is a challenge to get to the hottest version of James (laughs) McAvoy. So... Good job. Second hottest to the time that he bumped into you. Didn't bump into me. He just walked for a block about six paces in front of me. And that was mm. all. That was fine. That was fine. I didn't need to get any closer than that. Um, <laughs> My number three is Brick. Ryan Johnson's Brick, which was like he like oh my god i was such a dork for that movie for a while and i know that like there's potential for me for that movie to be like a pretentious film dorks sort of uh cause celeb or whatever but dorm room poster i still haven't yeah seen it. it's a dorm room poster kind of a movie i will own that but also um very rewatchable i've watched it a bunch of times i think joseph gordon levitt is rad in it and um really excellent my number two is brokeback mountain cliche yes but i like it too um yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. I'm a, you know, gay guy who came out of the closet around the same year that Brokeback Mountain happened. Like, what do you want from me? What the fuck do you want from me? Um, and then my number one is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It was never in question. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. So This is an exciting list. Exciting uh, also because I think we diverge in really interesting ways. And we agree in other ways, but in different placements that I think is very interesting. All right. Let's hear yours. All right, my number 10, you know how much I love this movie. Um, I am a huge fan of Diablo Cody. Uh, my number 10 is uh, Tully. Tully. It's a good, Tully, it's a good selection. Great, a great, uh, very uh, lean movie that it comes so close to the edge of shitting the bed and... Uh, pivots in a way that I think uh, is very humane and beautiful and made me cry. Uh, number nine, I did include D. Reese's Pariah. Fucking yeah. love Pariah. Coming soon to the Criterion Collection. Um, what about Pariah? Um, number eight, Less Caution. We just talked about it. Great yes. movie. Number seven, I chose Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, sure, a movie sure. that when I first watched it, I was like, sure, good movie. And the more I think about it, the more I think about the personal dynamics in it, the more I'm like, <laughs> this is uh, shockingly close to my marriage. Um, <laughs> I l- love that movie so much. Um, uh, my husband and I do not poison each other, I promise. Um <laughs> Number six, uh, the aforementioned Sofia Coppola's Somewhere. That was the one I felt like I kind of stuck my claim in. And, like, we talked about this in the episode, and I think even since, that is a movie that continues and continues to grow on me in a way that I'm like, this is her very best movie. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. My number five is atonement. All of the things you said. Um, plus, uh, it, I think it's a really, um, uh, intense movie about regret and, uh, making horrible decisions. And I think it's graceful in a way that certain other movies, uh, that are coming out this year might not be. Um, my number four, we also recently talked about this. I forget when we would have talked about this. Um, but it's the Coen Brothers, a serious man. I think yeah. It's probably my favorite of their movies. Um, quite wonderful. Uh, Michael Stuhlbarg should have an Oscar for that movie. My number three is your number one, Eternal Sunshine. My top three, I feel like I'm splitting hairs a little bit because yeah. all great movies, all quintessential focus features movies. Um, uh, yeah. Eternal Sunshine, uh, I've, living with that movie for 20 years is just like <laughs> knowing in high school that I love that movie as much as I did feels like I, uh, became the person I was supposed to be. Um, <laughs> Uh, my number two is Brokeback Mountain. Uh, again, I am a gay man. What do you want from me? Yeah. Uh, that was another movie that, strangely, when I first saw it, I was like, okay, I get it. But, like, it really is Ang Lee's movie that, like, part of the reason why it packs such a punch, of course, people bring their own baggage to the movie and their own lived experience to the movie. But, like, every second of that movie mm-hmm. is packed with so much information that you have to process yeah, in a way that like, that's why this movie is already standing the test of time because like you get people today, even like raving about how great Kate Mara is in that movie. Oh yeah. In it for one scene yep. is perfect is yep. exactly what she's supposed to be. And like, brings so much like life to the table. And like, you get that in every detail of that movie. Yep. Um, and it's also hilarious that uh, Psycho Trumpy Randy Quaid is in it. Yes, it um, is. It's very hilarious. Yes. And then my number one, another reason why probably Dark Waters didn't make my list, my number one is Todd Haynes' Far From Heaven. Very good. I've said this before. I can't maybe name many other uh, working filmmakers whose like third best movie is as perfect as that movie is. Yeah. Um, Another movie just crammed with so much detail that you really have to contextualize not only through the era he's, you know, portraying, but also the references he's using and yeah. like having a knowledge of yeah what the limitations of the movies he's referencing were at the time. What do you um, put ahead of it for him, Carol and, and Velvet Goldmine? Carol and Safe. Oh, I think... I'm not as big of a fan of Safe as everybody else is. You maybe want to get further away from the pandemic before you watch Safe again. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I'm Uh, not in any hurry to watch Safe again. But yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. But Velvet Goldmine is is a special one for Todd Haynes. Velvet Goldmine is probably towards the bottom of my Todd Haynes list. But he's also someone who the worst thing he's ever made is Wonderstruck. And I'm the person that's like, actually, Wonderstruck is really good. I've been (laughs) wanting to rewatch that for a while because I remember watching it and being like... A little, we should actually being a little disappointed by it, but uh, but not, but still being fond of it. So I saw it the same week as I saw Coco, uh. and as you know of me, I am a real emotional sucker. Like the bullseye that if you can hit it, I will be weeping for quite some time. Is grandmother stuff, mm. and like yeah, not to spoil the movie. That's for like me with sibling but- stuff. Yeah, when it locks into place, I was 
uh, I was a weepy mess. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. All right. Very good. I think Focus we're going to features. Close the we book. love you. Uh, send us some swag. Yeah. Not oh to be like, God. send us some swag, but send us some swag. No, I'm, I'm very comfortable being like, send us some swag. We love you, Focus. Um, we're happy to do this. Thanks for uh, being with us for another uh, miniseries. We still have the IMDb game. Don't go anywhere. But I'm just saying it was. Yeah. Uh, this was a great miniseries. Uh, let us know what you guys thought of the Focus Features uh, miniseries, too. Let us know anything that you might want us to do next year as a miniseries. Yeah. Yeah. Because at this point last year, when we had closed out Naomi Watts, I think focus was already in the back of my mind as something we might do for the next one. I truly don't know what to, what our next miniseries next year is going to be. So uh, I thought of one welcome. idea, but it would be uh, I'll maybe not say it on mic because yeah, I can don't. throw it out to you later in case we decide to use it. Exactly. Um, uh, I had one idea, but it felt like it would be behind the curve, shall we say? Well, now I'm intrigued. We'll talk about it off air. Okay. Um, Meantime, Chris, why don't you tell our listeners about what the IMDb game is? You guys, you guys, I know this is going to be a revelation <laughs> for you um, who have been longtime listeners, but we end every episode with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top, top four titles that IMDb says we are mo- they are most known for. Uh, really bombing it today. Uh, if any of those titles are television voiceover performances or non-acting credits like producing or directing we'll mention that up front after the two wrong guesses we get the remaining titles release years as a clue if that's not enough it just becomes a free for all of hints woohoo imdb game all right yeah do you um, want to give her guess first yeah in the interest of radical transparency i did uh search out mine my choice for you while we were talking about our favorite focus features movies because i <laughs> had forgotten um but good for me that i was able to uh to improv okay so why don't i give uh give to you first okay all right so um talked about joel edgerton in this episode one of our previous, this is our second Joel Edgerton film, the previous one that we had uh, done that he is in, he, of course, played uh, Ramses in the great, lovingly remembered, obviously everybody talks about it all the time, Ridley Scott movie, Exodus Gods and Kings. Um, Exodus Gods and Kings. And Kings. Thank you, Goldie Hawn. Um, also in that film, with, uh, as I recall, a lot of makeup on him, was uh, our friend Ben Mendelsohn, who we talked about just last week for Place Beyond the Pines. So, uh, Chris, I don't think we've done Ben Mendelsohn before, and I think we should. So what... What Focus Features movie got you to Ben Mendelsohn? No, a Joel Edgerton movie Ooh, got me Ooh, maybe to that's a hint. No, I went through Joel oh, Edgerton. Oh, I thought you were saying... Oh, you pulled it up while we were doing our Focus Features. Yes. Gotcha. I, gotcha, I, gotcha. Yeah, I was looking it up while we were doing our Focus Features. Yes. No TV. <clears throat> Um, but he also did Place Beyond the Pines, which was a Focus Features movie. So when you ask, yes, what Focus true, movie. very good in that movie. Uh, he, he plays a walking ashtray. He's in so the Place Beyond the Pines. wonderful. All right, uh, no television, no voice-only work, no producing, directing credits. Cool. Um, Rogue One. Full title, please. A Star Wars story. Correct. Yes, he's the baddie in uh, in Rogue One, a Star Wars story. My favorite of the new Star Wars movies. Uh, it's a mess, but I do enjoy it. Um, 
sure as hell isn't going to be Exodus Gods and Kings. Uh, what you, uh, you uh, was it this episode you mentioned Animal Kingdom? I'm going to say Animal Kingdom. He fucking rules in Animal Kingdom. Yes, that is correct. Cool. Um, also opposite Joel Edgerton. Yes. Hmm. See, there's a lot of small stuff or stuff that people hasn't seen, haven't seen. Like, um, what's the movie where he wears the giant fur coat? Slow West. Oh, Slow West is, is good, but uh, uh, they're not wrong when they uh, when they titled it Slow West. But yes, I am. I'm not going to guess that though. There's a lot of those kind of movies. I am going to guess Darkest Hour, where he plays uh, King George. Doesn't he have a lisp in that movie too? Well, he has a stutter, but yes, I think also maybe a lisp. Um, he always kind yeah, of has a King lisp. King George had a stutter, but yeah. I think that he plays him also with a lisp. Yeah, I mean, Ben Mendelsohn does kind of have a little bit of a lisp. So he, I think, I, I think yes, it came through uh, in that for sure. But unfortunately, Darkest Hour, not one of his. Okay. He's also the big baddie, and I would probably guess second build in Ready Player One. Yes, he's in Ready Player One. You got it. Okay. I didn't think you were going to get that one. Yes, so you have three of the four. You only have one strike. Ready Player One is like, oh, I, I I realize there's people that defend that movie, but like I I can't abide. Um, I think he's like third build in Captain Marvel, even though he's buried in makeup. So I'm going to say Captain Marvel. Took me that entire maybe to the end credits of that movie to figure out that that was him, but no, uh, not <laughs> Captain Marvel. So. Uh, two strikes. Now you get the year of your missing movie. The year is 2012. So shortly after Animal Kingdom, this is when he was getting cast in a bunch of small bits. Would have been the same year that Place Beyond the Pines at least premiered. Correct. He... Mm. I wonder if Bloodline was going on during this. Um, well, that's a TV show. It doesn't matter, but it might help me place it. Um, 2012. Oh, no, 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 no. Wait, he has a small role in Dark Knight Rises. Very good. Dark Knight Rises. Yes. He's one of the people on the plane at the beginning or is, or am I, am I placing him wrong? He's like that. I think he is like a flunky, but. Was it was his name on the post? No, it wouldn't have been on the poster. But I remember him as being in that movie. Yes. Well, anyway, yes, you got it. Um, oh no, I'm looking at uh, no. I, I looked up uh, images from him in Dark Knight Rises. He's in a suit. He's in a boardroom in a suit. So he's maybe one of the yeah, yeah. He's people. a bureaucrat. There's somebody who's on the the plane heist in that uh, in that film. Is, but, uh, is that's the one where they there's like a takeover at Wayne Enterprises for no reason, right? And he like leads it or something. I think that's right. I think that's there's right. a whole like Wayne Enterprises bullshit in that. There's a lot going on movie. in that film. I will say. Um. Okay. Great. Thank you for Ben Mendelsohn. For you, I went down the very long list. Of people who have also played Mothers to Lucas Hedges. Oh, no. Uh, um, surprisingly, uh, we've done most of him. But perhaps even more surprisingly is this one that we have not previously done on the IMDb game. is Francis McDormand. Interesting. Recent four-time Oscar winner, Francis McDormand. So wait, Oscar winners who have played, ben, uh, played Lucas Hedges' mom. 
just actresses who have played Lucas Hedges. But well. like, but particularly Nicole Kidman, Julia Roberts, Frances McDormand. Are there any other Oscar-winning actresses who have played Lucas Hedges' as mom? Uh, hold, please. I will try to. That's I, still five re pull up five Oscars among the 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 moms of Lucas Hedges. That's not Lest bad. we forget, Elaine May played his grandmother on Broadway. Oh, he was in that play, huh? That's interesting. The also, Elaine May like praised the hell out of him too. So oh. Elaine May is. Uh, Elaine know, May write a praises. movie for Lucas Hedges to star in Challenge. Absolutely. Remember the news that Elaine May was going to direct a movie with Dakota Johnson in it? No. That I was like, this is never going to happen, but I want it. Yeah. Throw Lucas into that one. All right, Lukey. I'm going to go through his right. uh, filmography really quickly. All right. Uh, let's not forget that Meryl is his aunt in Let Them All Talk. Right. Oh, um, Michelle Pfeiffer, who has never won an Oscar, but still. Never know. won an Oscar, but still his mom. Yeah. Uh, in French Exit. Obviously, and, Gretchen Mall uh, has never won an Oscar, but, you know. Gretchen Mall. Famously his mom in Manchester by the Sea. And which actress played his mom on the slap? Uh, I don't know, because he's not one of the kids in the family. He's a friend. He's like the gay friend of one of the, of, I want to say, maybe um, Peter Sarsgaard's daughter or something. But I don't think he's any of the, like, canonical children in the slap. Sure. Also, he was in the um, How Do We Get Our Hands on This Footage uh, pilot, Noah Baumbach's pilot of Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections. Corrections. Oh, So my God. technically Diane Weiss counts. I say that Diane Weiss counts. So that's two more Oscars. So really, that's a, that's a cache of seven Oscars among the women playing Lucas Hedges' mom. That's amazing. Well done. Wait, who is he in Labor Day? Uh, Probably some random kid. Isn't he like a bully in Labor Day? He's not the main kid. He's not the main kid. Okay. Well, then fine. Because I was going to say, if he's Kate Winslet's kid in in Labor Day, that's another Oscar. (laughs) All right. Anyway. Okay. You have to guess Frances McDormand, though. Right. Okay. So, well, Fargo. Fargo. And Three Billboards. Three billboards. I'm not going to say Nomadland quite yet. I'm not ready to pull that trigger. Um, But what else? Almost Famous? Almost Famous. My lovely Almost Famous. Can you get a perfect score for Frances McDormand? All right. So. I'm not going to give you a hint, but there is a hint I could give you. Well, don't. Um... All right, so we can throw out... I'm not going to guess the Transformers movie she was in. I'm not going to guess Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day or Madeline or Mississippi Burning, although that is another Oscar nomination of hers, or probably not North Country. Or... Probably not Burn After Reading, but is it another Cohen's movie? Is it like a Raising Arizona type joint? Watch it be Nomadland and you're just like cackling internally right now at my misfortune. What a jerk you would be for doing that. I know. Um, 
We have fought a lot in this episode. I'm not going to be a jerk to you in this game. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I'm just going to guess Nomadland, because if it is Nomadland, I'm going to kick myself for not guessing it. It's not Nomadland. All right, fuck. All right. Well, now the pressure is off for me getting a perfect score. Okay. Um, what's a, like, big Francis role that, like, is, like, nice and prominent? She's, like... Very well known and popular. Like man who wasn't there is too small, obviously. Unlike Hail Caesar, it's too small of a role again. I'm gonna say Moonrise Kingdom. It is Moonrise Kingdom. No shit. <laughs> the hint I almost gave you was Lucas Hedges is in it. A Focus Features movie, and it's a Lucas Hedges movie. And it's a Lucas Hedges movie. That's so funny. I well, I almost wish you hadn't because I could have used that in my next trivia round where I do uh, photos of people in the same movie and then what other movie were they both in together? That would have been a good one for Francis and Lucas. If I ever form one with you, I am absolutely going to do a round around people who have played Lucas Hedges' mom. No, that'd be a good one. No, you're never going to do that because I always want you to play trivia when I give trivia because you're very good at it. Uh, you are. Don't deny. I am, but like I, I have a, I have at this point a, uh, a like key into your mind that feels vaguely unfair. Well, then, but then I want to throw curveballs your way, so that's also good. Okay. Fine. Um. Also, you haven't won trivia yet, so it's not unfair until you win. Um. Yeah, I'm I not going to piss okay. anyone off until I win. Sure. Right, exactly. All right, that is our episode, uh, and that is our mini-series on Focus Features. We hope you liked it. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account, at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris v. File. That's F-E-I-L. Yeah, I am on Twitter and Letterboxd, both as the same uh, name, Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so please make a note of our gang affiliations as you fill out a list of our behavioral sins and also say something nice about us. That is all for this week. We hope you will be back next week for more buzz.